Hello, welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, General Smith Dorian, a veteran of the Zulu War of 1879 and the First Boer War in 1881, seizes the initiative at a place called Lily Spring or Lily Fontaine in the Eastern Transvaal in November 1900. At the same time, Transvaal President Paul Kruger was on board a ship sailing to Europe to drum up support for the Boers, while his Free State colleague, President Steyn, had experienced a British attack that almost saw him captured at Bouterville. Lord Roberts is making final preparations to leave South Africa and is in the process of handing over leadership to the gangly and brutally direct Lord Kitchener. It would be a new phase of action against the Boers and dominated by insurgency, civilians as victims and a scourge called concentration camps. We are still riding with the Canadians in the area around Belfast in the eastern Transvaal, which was a short distance away from South Africa's all-important coal mines. Last week, we heard how the icy rain had lashed Smith Dorian's 1,200-strong column as it tried to rid the region of a large Boer commander based at the nearby town of Carolina to the south. That was a column of various English, Scots and Canadian unions. He had been forced to retreat after the effects of weather and Boer firepower at Wittkloof and buried one of his top officers called Chalmers, but that didn't deter Smith Dorian. A few days after his men arrived back in Belfast, bedraggled and ragged, he was planning a new offensive against the Boers. The first tragic expedition was merely a dress rehearsal for the Battle of Lillyfontein. The purpose of the second expedition was identical to the first, to destroy all the farms suspected of harbouring the Boer commandos, who had been blowing up railway lines and committing other acts of sabotage. The British also wanted to lure the large Boer Carolina commander out of their lair along the Kamati River and into battle. On the 6th of November, Smith Dorian once again set out under cover of darkness as he did last week, but unlike the first expedition, there was no icy rain, no fog, no mist. It wasn't perfect weather that his columns set off with temperatures in the early evening around mid-twenties. That's centigrade. There was one important difference this week. Smith Dorian had learned his lesson when it came to splitting up his force, and the 1,200 men moved as one unit. Remember last week he'd split his force in two. The advance guard under the command of Spens consisted of the Royal Canadian Dragoons with close to 100 troopers on horseback, a squadron of 5th Lancers, two pom-pom guns and two artillery pieces under the command of Morrison. Lesside was the overall commander of this advance unit. The main column just behind them comprised the Canadian Mounted Rifles, the Shropshire Light Infantry, two companies of the Suffolks, four guns of the 84th Battery, two 5-inch guns, and a section of engineers in case trenches needed building or rivers needed fording or railway lines needed fixing. Behind them, the rear guard saw two companies of Suffolks, a group of lancers, bearers carrying supplies, along with the usual wagon supply train and a group of 5th lancers on horseback as a deterrent against attacks from the rear. This 10-kilometre-long column filed out of Belfast that night and headed south, heading towards Wittkloof, from where they'd retreated only a few days before. The Boers, meanwhile, were waiting. Elements of the Carolina commando, making up around 600 men, were expecting this new assault. Its leader, General J.C. Furry, and his 2IC H.R. Prinzler had held a meeting with General Hans Krobler and senior officers of the Ermelo commando, and they all agreed that the British would probably try to cross the Kamati River and then continue south to the town of Carolina. 
and so they set a trap along the high ground north of the town, but Woodsmith Dorian take the bait. After marching for four hours from Belfast, the British came across the first Boer position. Prince Louis had told his men not to waste their time trying to hold off the British, and the idea was to snipe and slow down this column, causing irritation and frustration. Steadily, the British pushed the Boers back from ridge to ridge, with Smith Dorian describing the Boer tactics as attacking front, flanks and rear like Cossacks. Eventually, this stuttering process saw the British forces arrive at Van Bakes Vlei. It was a wetland in a small depression just before Wittkloof Ridge. Remember last week the British had been forced to retreat from this meeting point, followed by an embarrassing and shambolic slithering and sliding in the mud and the sleet. This time, however, things were going to be different. Morrison, the artillery commander, had realized that his guns should be graduated in hundreds of yards to 4,000 yards in total. He made his men train with this in mind. By the time the column had set off, these gunners were able to hit targets almost at will, even moving targets. That was to prove to be crucial in the next two days. They were so accurate that other units, including infantry nearby, would send messengers to Morrison's men to ask for the range of special shots, such as snipers. Often in this war, the Boers had been in a position to test range and then pepper the British troops with extremely accurate fire. But the Canadians were also bred on the plains, where most households had rifles or muskets, and the soldiers had an innate knowledge of distance in the environment. They also had Sergeant Holland and his horse-drawn Colt machine gun, which I described last week, and the Boers were determined to rid themselves of this dangerous weapon. And this time the Boers who met Smith Dorian's column at Van Bakesflay faced these more efficient gunners who very quickly drove them off the high ground and back to the secondary defences. While these early skirmishes took place with few casualties on both sides, the Boers from Carolina took up their positions on a steep rocky ridge along the Kamati River between Wittkloof and Lillyfontaine Farm. Eventually, Smith Dorian's Canadian vanguard arrived at the Wittkloof Ridge, and as they began to climb its heights, the Boers opened fire from behind their strong natural defences. Lessards, Canadian Dracoons and Shropshire Regiment tried to rush the Boers but were pinned down as usual by the extremely accurate Morser fire. Morrison's crack gunners then opened fire with equal accuracy and the power of the shells saw the Boers either retreat from some of the hilltops or move further south. Again, the Colt machine gun proved to be deadly and eventually the 84th Battery's two guns and infantry units made it to the top of Wittkloof Ridge. From there, they began shelling the Boers further back. And sitting on the top of Wittkloof Ridge, with his back against a rock and holding his shoulder spurting blood, was the lead driver of Number 6 gun, a Canadian called Bombardier William Robertson Hare. His 22-year-old son, gunner William Archibald Hare, was standing nearby. They were fighting in the same unit. Hare Sr. was seriously wounded by shrapnel, but he survived. The rest of the infantry made their way up to the top of the ridge, assisted by the two five-inch howitzers, which they called cow guns. The Carolina commander was not about to be overrun, however, and fought back from the tops of ridges adjacent and further to the south. Twenty-six British troops fell here, trying to dislodge the Boers. Smith Dorian needed to remove Prince Lewis men quickly. It was already 2 p.m., and although it would remain light until close to 7 in the late spring, he knew his men must continue to hold the initiative. 
He was aware the Boers were skittish when a flanking manoeuvre began, so he sent Lessard's Canadian dragoons with two companies of Suffolk's and Morrison's guns southwest towards Lillifontaine to cut off the Boers' line of retreat along the Carolina Road. Lessard, though, faced two major challenges. The first was the Komati River, and the second was the landscape. The area is pitted with precipitous terrain, plunging ravines and rocks, which made it extremely difficult to move his artillery. Remember these weapons were pulled by horses, and the large boulder-strewn area meant he would often be shoehorned into ravines, which could leave his men open to Boer flanking manoeuvres of their own. The British arrived around 5,000 yards from the Carolina Road, and spotted the Boers then opened fire. The Boers then realised their escape route was under pressure and pulled back. They had finally been dislodged and galloped back to the heights above Carolina. While these firefights were ongoing, the Canadian mounted rifles had also been busy. Roving parties of Boers were seen across the felt and retribution was swift. The troops had been ordered by Lord Roberts to begin a series of farm burnings which the Canadians were enforcing. Lieutenant Rawton's third troop had been systematically burning farmhouses and seizing livestock while ransacking and looting what they could. This obviously enraged everyone and was extremely dangerous. In one example, the Boers set a trap for Captain Begin's unit, which had become isolated. Twenty Boers waited for him. At that moment, Captain Begin dispatched an officer called Major Bliss. Yes, these names do sound somewhat comedic, to warn the outlying units that Boers had been spotted. The Major rode straight into this group of Boers, and they were in no mood to entertain officers, seeing their valuable property being destroyed so wantonly. They shot Major Bliss's horse out from under him, and then stripped him of his revolver, spurs, and cigarettes. One of the Boers in the party was the owner of a house which was crackling and on fire nearby, and he wanted the Major shot dead on the spot. But the other Boers said no, and after taking his boots, made him walk back to his unit. They didn't want the trouble of a prisoner, nor did they want his cold-blooded killing on their conscience. The sun sank behind the corpies, and both sides took stock. The British controlled the main road up to Witkloof and two adjoining farms. One was called Goedehoop, or Good Hope, and the other Lilyfontein, Lily Spring. It was the latter farm that would lead to one of the Canadians' most symbolic victories of this war and indirectly set them on a road that was to lead to huge losses in 14 years' time during the First World War. Like the New Zealanders and Australians, the Canadians as Commonwealth troops were seen as courageous, never-say-die frontier soldiers made of steel. That was to lead to Gallipoli and the Western Front, where oral tradition back home and a sometimes overconfident leadership would be corralled by the British in a mixture of imperialism and fatal myth-making. So that night, the British lit signal fires for their brethren scattered throughout the region and who'd returned home for the planting season, calling on them to return ASAP. It was spring after all, and raids had begun to fall, but now the commanders needed them back in the saddle to oppose Smith Dorian. General Fauré and Commandant Prinsler once again conferred with Grobler and his officers, and all agreed that Smith Dorian's next move would be to attack Carolina. But Smith Dorian was no beginner in Africa. He'd fought the Zulu War and the Boers in the First Boer War, yet 
He'd made mistakes, but he'd learned and continued to employ a mixture of tactics at this point. He wasn't just an imperial military commander. He had forged much of his understanding in Africa's bush and felt. We'll see now how this led to him surprising the Boers because he'd learned one of the most important rules of war, live to fight another day. The Boers had a total of around 600 men opposing Smith Dorian's 1,200. He also had enough supplies to last many more days out on the expedition. But Smith Dorian was not as mobile as the Boers, and he had come to the conclusion that the strategy of stretching his units across the felt was not sustainable, and of course he was right. He knew that the Boers could move hundreds of men to virtually any point they chose on the Carolina Road far quicker than the British could respond, which meant the Boers could attack at numerous weak points, and by doing so would defeat him as he tried to attack further south. Smith Dorian was canny and experienced, so he decided to withdraw back to Belfast. In these days of guerrilla war, this was not a sign of defeat. It was a sign of boxing smart. Surely, he thought, the Boers would now target the most important tools he had as they moved. His artillery and Smith Dorian was right. In the wide open expanses of the South African landscape, artillery was vital. And as the Boers had lost virtually all their guns, capturing his would be a coup and something the British leaders were determined to avoid. So Smith Dorian put his most effective units, the Canadian Dragoons and Morrison's guns, close to his other artillery units which we'll see was a masterstroke, albeit one which almost backfired. Before dawn on the 7th of November, Ebens's mounted rifles began to move. It was part of the main unit on the Witkloof Ridge. General Faree's commander was already heading towards the same Lillyfontein camp, and this early start was a big surprise. Their next event was one which I'm sure must have been incredible to watch had we been there. Evans immediately realized that Faree was heading towards a strategic ridge to the south. It turned into a horse race for both sides, a test of equestrian skill, South African versus Canadian. Around 300 Boers and 53 Canadians on horseback charged at each other from opposite directions in full view of the main British column. The four-kilometer-long race was called spectacular by those who witnessed it, but Evans' men won the race by around 100 meters. The 53 men then proceeded to fire on the Boers who dismounted and took cover in a dry river bed to the southwest. While this was going on, Smith Dorian ordered Colonel Spence to begin heading to the high ground to the north, which they'd just captured, close to Funfake's Flay, leaving the Canadian Dragoons with Morrison's much-vaunted guns to protect the rear as the British began to withdraw. It was a systematic withdrawal, with the gunners supposedly being used to keep the Boers' heads down as the rest of the units galloped or ran from ridge to ridge. General Faree had not been idle either. When he realized that the British would not be attacking his forces where they were, he ordered them to attack the retreating infantry, artillery and cavalry. 200 men from the Carolina Commando whooped into action, swooping down on Lessard's rearguard. Sixty of Evans's mounted infantry were sent to cover the left flank from General Faurie's rampaging Boers. At least 200 other Boers then appeared close to the Canadian Dragoons, who were alongside Morrison's guns, who also had, remember, the horse-drawn Colt machine gun at hand. The English reinforcements were moving painfully slowly, though, leaving these gunners and the Dragoons alone to fight off the first Boer assault. 
Their technique was similar to Native American-style attacks on Custer's cavalry. They'd charge in low and fast in the saddle, firing as they came. Then they'd wheel about in a cloud of dust and gallop back to the safety of a nearby covey, while the Canadians leveled pom-pom and rifle fire towards the burghers. The Canadians did not crack in the face of these frighteningly quick assaults. Lesside himself rode from ridge to ridge, talking to his men in the midst of battle, in what could be called a Napoleonic style. The Boers were having better luck to the right of this ridge, where Lieutenant Coburn's troops were in serious trouble. Lessard ordered Morrison to take a single gun up the ridge to where Coburn was fighting off a sustained attack. Amazingly, the Canadians managed to fire their artillery piece. As they moved, 12 shells exploded around the Boers, but they too refused to back down. Then things became even more critical. Lessard saw, at that moment, that Morrison was about to be surrounded and he could lose his all-important artillery. So they left Coburn and his infantry to his fate, and the Boers surrounded the small unit of around 30 men. But they weren't interested in prisoners and continued on their way towards the guns after stripping the men of their rifles and ammunition. Lessard still refused to panic, although his left flank was also exposed. The Middleburg Boer commander under Louis Stein had begun the attack on his left, while simultaneously the Carolina commander galloped after Morrison and his artillery in the centre. Things were evenly balanced at this point. Who would win this fast-moving skirmish? Captain Holland and his Colt machine gun were in the direct sights of a group of Boers, who descended on him, and quick as a flash, he unscrewed the barrel from the machine gun, put it under his arm, jumped on his horse, and took off with the Boers bearing down on him. The Suffolks now began to panic. They saw their artillery hurrying away and the Boers swarming towards them and their nerves snapped. The infantry broke and ran, leaving the Canadian militiamen in their midst who remained to save their countrymen in the artillery and dragoon units. The plain between the two ridges now became a sea of confusion. Men from both sides were walking about in a daze. Wounded and dead lay scattered across the felt while riderless horses charged about completing a scene of chaos. Walking wounded wove their way across this plain, holding shattered arms or dragging limbs, carrying friends, shouting for help. At these moments time slows, sounds morph, smells accentuate, adrenaline causes glands to ache as they throb, your eyesight focuses on a small point in the centre of your vision. Three Victoria Crosses were awarded in this little battle, one to Private Albert Nisley, he spotted his close friend Percy Price cowering behind an anthill and rode 300 metres to the spot, grabbed his friend who leapt upon the horse and galloped back to his unit. But, I'm afraid, Nisley was shot and seriously wounded in the effort to help his friend and fell. Price, swearing revenge, leapt aboard the horse and turned to charge the Boers only to have the animal shot from under him, falling in a spray of dust. Lieutenant Turner of the Dragoons had also been shot and was critically wounded, but he stood up in a classic scene, turned to his men and shouted, Never let it be shed that the Canadians let their guns be captured, and sprinted towards Evans and Morrison's units, which were in real danger. Across the small valley, General Fauré saw Morrison's guns falling behind and ordered his men to charge towards Evans's mounted infantry in an effort to seize the initiative. Boer Commandant Prinsloo, Fauré's faithful second-in-command, joined him along with 100 Boers who proceeded to gallop towards the crest. Later, the Canadians told newspapers the scene resembled a Wild West show. 
The Boers were crouched in their saddles, firing their Mauser's while holding their reins, working their Mauser bolts, firing again, when suddenly Turner's small unit appeared out of nowhere and at point-blank range fired back at this fearsome group of Boers. General Ferry, right at the front, leading his men, was shot through the mouth and killed instantly. Commandant Prinsler realized the folly, and as he turned to warn his men, he was shot through the head and fell onto the felt to die a short while later. Other Boers arrived at the Colt machine gun carriage, only to find it was missing its barrel and set fire to the contraption. They were so angry. But the game was up. By 2 p.m. the Boers retreated, and at this moment the Canadians confronted their English colleagues who had run from the battlefield. Morrison demanded the English charge the Boers at that moment, and in reply an officer, who is nameless, apparently said to him, I can't do anything. They, he means the Boers, went faster from ridge to ridge. There were three companies of Suffolk, more than 300 men, and they had done virtually nothing in the fight. At least, that's what the Canadians maintain. A handful of Boers tried to attack once more, but the loss of their beloved leader, General Fauré, and their second-in-command had dealt the commando a severe blow against morale. They withdrew and stopped fighting. While this battle was light in casualties, two dead on the Canadian side, seven critically wounded, around 40 others with lighter wounds, and on the Boer side, two dead, the two general and commandant, Fauré and Prinsler, 20 or so wounded, it's the unbridled passion on both sides that distinguishes this firefight. Another aspect of this firefight was its chivalrous nature. Despite the farm burnings and other vengeful acts by the British, the Boers and British treated each other with dignity during and after this battle. For example, before releasing the Canadians they'd caught, the Boers asked some to join their units, so impressed they were by their fighting skill. On the other hand, the Canadians reported that the Boers were a very superior lot, splendidly mounted, well-dressed. The column then buried the dead and returned to Belfast on the morning of the 8th of November as heroes. A trainload of Tommies, or British troops, cheered them into town while Smith Dorian said the fight had been unprecedented in this war. Turner, Coburn and Holland received the Victoria Cross, Morrison, the Distinguished Service Order. But back in England... There was no reaction. You see, Lillyfontaine was a brutal, short, small battle on the felt, thousands of kilometres away. There were no telegrams or congratulations. However, what this little battle of Lillyfontaine did was convince Canadian military authorities that if there was to be another war, the Canadian troops would be formed up in one division in their own army. Of course, the next war was to become known as the Great War, or the war to end all wars, the First World War. And Morrison and Turner and Knisley, who, by the way, fully recovered from his heroic ride, will all live on to fight in that new Canadian army in the terrible trenches of the First World War. So now we halt as this eastern Transvaal battle of Lillyfontaine has ended. The graves are being freshly dug. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and head off to the website at abwarpodcast.com where you can send me emails and messages. Until next week then, goodbye. <laughs>